With great mojo comes great responsibility. Mojo 5 Mojo 5 We will make America great again. Sam Sorbo. Well, welcome to the Sam Sorbo Show. I'm your host, Sam Sorbo. Which makes it convenient for me because I'll never forget the name of the show. Uh, here on Mojo50.com, thanks for joining me. I have a special sort of a, 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 a recap of uh, what's been happening in the world. And a special guest who joined me last week and I asked him to come back because I found his story so fascinating and so um, enlightening, actually. And so yesterday we were talking about Made in America um, as being very important I just want to bring this guy in. His name is August Turak. He's a highly successful entrepreneur. He's also an award-winning author. He's a speaker. He's a contributor for Forbes and the BBC. And he's the founder of the educational nonprofit, the Self-Knowledge Symposium Foundation. So as a home educator, uh, just, just his bio is so appealing to me because here is somebody who didn't allow... Uh, whatever his whatever his schooling was to sort of dictate his limitations, which is something that I feel like we do in this nation in general, is that we we allow our school to dictate. And I said this yesterday on the show, um, the the idea that Steve for uh, not Steve Forbes, uh, uh, Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple Computer, and he founded Apple Computer in his basement and worked it up into a highly successful company, and then. Um, and then he sold, no, he got ousted off of the board. They kicked him off the board. And then he came back later and bought the company back. Uh, you know, hugely successful, you know, inarguably an enormous success. Actually said to the graduating class of Stanford, if you're not a graduate this year, don't graduate, run, run for your lives. Because the institution puts limitations on you. That it, And it can't help it. I don't say that it's on purpose or not. I'm not saying that it's intentional. I'm just saying that it exists. And so with that, let's talk with August Chirac. You know what? Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your education? Well, and I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I what? Was, uh, yes. Where? I'm, a, I'm from the South Hills of Pittsburgh. I'm from Scott Township. Uh, Get right out now. of town. I'm from, yeah. I'm from uh, Mount Lebanon. <laughs> I'm from Scott Township. <laughs> Well, you know, you know where, uh, where, then you know where Manor Oak Shopping Center is. Yes, right? and you know how to say South Hills. Uh, exactly, <laughs> rather South Hills, right? South, South Hills. Hills. And uh, <laughs> I went to Saint, I went to Saint Simon and Jude School up there on Green Tree Road. Oh my uh, gosh! Okay. You know, and um, um, it's speaking, and then uh, speaking of uh, education, a life-shattering event for me was I won a scholarship to go to prep school up in New England. So I went to one of those hotsy totsy exclusive uh, New England prep schools um, for three years um, from, uh, and graduated in, I graduated in 1970. Then I came back with the university of Pittsburgh and I uh, graduated with a, with a uh, Russian history degree. And interestingly enough, because I had a really, uh, 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 you know, there's a fascinating story because I eventually my Russian history degree is the reason why I sold my company for mo- millions and millions of dollars. 
Um, but when I was in uh, going to college, all anybody asked me all the time is, what the hell are you doing studying Russian history? Uh, what are you going to do with Russian history? And I remember one graduate student who I didn't even uh, who in science or something. I didn't even know who he was. We were walking across campus and he said to me, he said, what are you studying? I said, Russian history. And he said, what are you going to do with it? And I felt like telling him exactly where to, what I was going to do with it. But <laughs> I said, uh, oh, I don't know. I guess I'll become a, a Russian history professor. And he said, you know how many jobs open every year? And Russian history or professorships? I said, no. He said, he said, maybe three. I said, oh, good. That's two more than I'll need. Um, but I actually, I self-schooled myself in college. Uh, I took exactly, uh, classes. I would sign up for three times as many classes as I could possibly take. I was could take five classes. So I'd sign up for 15. I would go to all 15 of the classes in the first two weeks and see who were the best professors and teachers were and the ones that were going to teach me something that would help me learn how to live my life. And then I would drop the 10. I would drop 10 and only keep the five. Hmm. And all of my life, uh, I was dedicated, <clears throat> excuse me, I was dedicated to uh, um, to just educating myself and not necessarily caring about whether it was going to turn into a career or, or whether it was going to get me girls or anything. You know, I just was really uh, fascinated. I wanted to answer questions about life. Uh, and that's from the time I was just uh, a freshman in college. That was my that was my drive. So Steve Jobs uh, had the same had a similar sort of a. Uh, an epiphany, I suppose, when he was in college and, you know, he, he'd been adopted, um, his, and he had, he had been adopted into a family that had promised that they would send him to college. That was the one commitment that the, that his, uh, birth mother had demanded. And so they were mortgaging the house to send him to college. And he was saying, you know, I don't even know what I want. So there's no reason for you to mortgage the house. That's terrible. So he dropped out of college and he spent a semester or more sleeping on his friends' couches, just migrating and taking and, and auditing classes. And he would ask to audit a class. Exactly. And, his, and he audited a class. He got really, really interested in calligraphy. Right. And, and everybody kept asking him, what the heck are you going to you know? And But later, when he came out with the Apple II, the big reason why the Apple II took off is because he had all these different fonts. Right. And all the fonts were went all the way back to this fact that he studied calligraphy so many years before. Yeah. So there was this happy accident of how this paid off, which is exactly the way it paid off for me when a man walked into my office in 1998 and uh, 99, and it turned out he was from Russia. <laughs> and, and so I ended up becoming super friends with him and he ended up buying my company. Uh, uh, That's not so, bad. Gavriche Paruski. All right. We have we have just two incredible lots of of things in common. I got to ask you real quick, Where is where am I living you from? I know your our listeners probably are not that interested in all this. Scrubgrass Road, baby. Oh, I know Scrubgrass Road. Sure, busy street. Lost two dogs on that stupid road. But, All right. Um, you know, but I actually, you know, interesting that you brought that up because I wrote an article. It ended up, I was not expecting it, but it ended up becoming one of those popular articles I wrote for Forbes. And it was called What Every Leader Must Know About Personal Development. And what I said there was that, um, that, 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 that the great writer Dostoevsky said, man is a mystery. If you spend your entire life trying to puzzle it out, do not say that you've wasted your time. 
I occupy myself with that mystery because I want to be a man. And he wrote that to his brother when he was only 17. And I said, the thing that people get wrong about personal development, and you hear about it all the time, and, and I, I'm always asked about it. I said, the hardest question I get when I do business kind of shows is, what do you do for personal development? I said, the biggest problem I have with that question is they assume that I do personal development so I can make money with it. I said, no, it's the other way around. That if you dedicate your life to your personal development, then the trailing indicator and the byproduct will probably be making money or or a happy marriage or or teaching kids or or doing the right thing or whatever. All the other ways in which you can have a fulfilled life. Um, I said, but, it's not, you know, the, but the, the purpose of all of our lives is to become the best human being we can possibly be. And the focus of my life, like the focus of Dostoevsky's, always has been my personal development. It, like, that's why I said, you know, getting back to your theme of, of, of um, schooling and education. I've always been, uh, which is why I still study Russian language. I'm still trying so to go this summer, by the way, to Russia to, to keep working on my Baruski. But the the uh, the these this is what people don't, I think, understand is that we do uh, personal development. I, that's where I get we're talking about the monks. And I said the reason why the monks are good at business is because they aim past business. They're aiming at personal development all the time, and it just happens to pay off in their business. Hmm. It's the byproduct and success in business is the byproduct of being a, a completely. Um, and I said, I said, notice, I said, Dostoevsky says at 17, a couple of years later, he was only like 21 when he published his first great novel and became an over quote unquote overnight success. I said, but he doesn't tell his brother he wants to be famous or make a lot of money or be a, even be a writer. All he wants in return for a lifetime of labor is to be a man. Mm. I, I want to be a, a man, and as a res, and, when, and when you set your your sights at that, and it's a big enough, that's it's the biggest goal you can aim for, and when you aim for just being a complete human being, then all these other, you know, it's 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 the it's the secular version, in my opinion, of seek first the kingdom, and everything else takes care of itself. So you you write in this article. I'm going to quote from you here because. Um, because it suits me, <laughs> Go right ahead. suits my narrative. Uh, as a result, personal development is compartmentalized. In other words, uh, we do it sort of off the clock in our spare time in order to, quote, get ahead in the, quote, real world. We're going to devote a, a little bit here for, quote, personal development as a means to an end. And in fact, you're saying it shouldn't be that. But the But part of this when you use the word compartmentalized, it makes me think of our education system, which compartmentalizes education. And education should not be compartmentalized because you can't have math without the history of math. You don't have science without the history of science. History and science are inextricably linked. Just like religion is politics, is religion, right? If you have a politician who says, well, I make decisions, but I don't base them on my, my religion or my worldview, then, then you've got a hypocrite. That's ridiculous. Of course you make I, your decisions based on how you see the world. <laughs> exactly. I, you know, and, I, and, and I also go on to say that I said that, you know, that uh, in a, you know, unwittingly, we become kind of like the real estate agent who goes to church every Sunday uh, with his wife and family, just so he'll look like, you know, so the people in the community will see him as a, as a church going honorable kind of guy. So it's because it's good for business to go to church. So we become um, hypocrites because we become, then we start making all of our decisions based on business or financial 
me. But I will. I, I want to go you one better because I, I I'm at hundred percent with you up to this point. But I, I want to add, add 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 a twist to it, which is the theme of my other book, which is Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks. One of the themes that I send you, you know, in the Christian tradition, we have uh, what's called formation. You know, when you when the monks enter the monastery, they don't go there for education; they go there for formation. Okay, I'm sorry. Sorry, let me just interject just because you were on last week, but let's not assume that everybody heard last week. And so August, uh, my guest is August Turek um, or Turek. Uh, He's he's written uh, these two books. One is Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks and the other is Brother John, A Monk, A Pilgrim and the Purpose of Life. And these books came out of his spending time with the monks in South Carolina. Exactly. Yeah. Monk's Corner, South Carolina. Okay. Go ahead now. Sorry. So, yes, I've been hanging out with them since 1996. Sometimes I spend, I've spent four months at a time living and working with the monks down there. And so they have this concept of formation. And formation is includes character development, not just intellectual development. So what our whole educational department, and by the way, this also corresponds to a wonderful opportunity I had. I actually moved in back when I was in my 20s. With I, I ran into and met the man who founded the IBM Executive School in 1956, and he ran it until 1966, and he spit out all the executives that then made IBM the most successful, most admired company in the world in the 60s and 70s. And he kept and he was a fanatic about education, and he said we're missing the boat. He said what I he said I almost got fired until I realized that the difference between a um, a successful executive and, and a non-successful executive isn't skills and knowledge. It's values and attitudes. It's character. You know, I was just working with a university and I, they introduced me and I said, you know, I want to start a whole different business school. And they said, what idea do you have? And I said, all of my courses would be Integrity 101, Willpower 101, Self-Control 101, um, uh, Compassion 101. I, and they, they were they just said, wow, wow, wow that's, a, that's such a great idea. I mean, these are the things that really distinguish the successful person, the goal orientation, deferred gratification, all these values and attitudes. Sure. The skills are relatively easy to impart. I'm not saying they are. Yeah, learning how to speak Russian is not easy, um, but it's relatively easy, whereas it takes a, a lot of you um, – and I, and I describe it in my book and as the monastery, you don't learn how to be a monk at the monastery. You become a monk. It's a transformation of being, I mm. call it. You don't learn to be a Marine. You become a Marine. Interesting. Because you, to, because you go through a boot camp that's an ex- intensive series so, of experiences. So let me ask you something. Uh, we studied Meno, which is one of the Socratic dialogues uh, this past semester with my 10th grader. And the main focus of, of the Socratic dialogue, Meno, is whether or not virtue can be taught. Can be taught. And the, the summation that Socrates reached was virtue cannot be taught. But I have a feeling, at least fr- from my point of view, virtue must be taught. And it's through the Bible that we teach virtue. Um, and but, but, so go, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm, yeah. I'm just wondering if you have a commentary on that. Yes. I mean, God, uh, I, I mean, I love this. I, lo- I wrote a whole paper myself on, you know, and everything. Um, 
you know, uh, he he said no. He said virtue cannot be taught; it can be midwifed. He called himself a midwife of virtue. You know, can 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 you learn how to play? Can you become a golfer by reading a book on golf? No. Does that mean it's not extremely valuable to read a book? Yes. But when you but but to become a golfer, you you must do and do and do and do. You must practice and practice and practice. It's it's an activity. Aristotle said we are what we repeatedly do. Virtue. And now the, we're now getting into Socrates. So what the word is erite, right? It's not really virtue. It's erite. And erite is is this is Greek. It's excellence of character. It's it's a huge word in the Greek language. Right. <clears throat> it's a huge no. word. It's a huge word in English too. And and you know the first thing that he seeks to do is define the word. And they find that it's it's difficult to def, to even define the word. But for our purposes, we're talking about moral yes, behavior. Exactly. And he says, he says, we are, what we repeatedly do excellence. Arete is not a choice. It's a habit. We become a virtuous person by constantly behaving virtuously. Oh, interesting. So then, so then ingrained in that is the challenge to virtue. So you must be challenged in order to become virtuous. Exactly. That's why the, these, the, and I use the whole thing of al- another model I use is Alcoholics Anonymous. You don't learn sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous. You become a sober or recovering alcoholic. And how do you do that? Because they have a formational program called the 12 step program. And it's not, and, and the 12 step program is not classroom work. Uh, now, classroom work is important. They have the big book, and you read the big book. And okay, the Bible, so, so... The Bible is important. I, reading the Bible doesn't make you a virtuous person. That's true. And when I say teach, of course, I don't mean in a classroom. Because to me, teaching doesn't actually happen in the classroom. So it's interesting, you know, getting specific with the words is important. So can virtue be taught? Well, it depends on what you mean by taught. Can it be learned, I suppose, would be a better question. And to that, what would you answer? Can it be learned? I, I would say, you know, and again, we're making, and I agree with you, by the way, I don't want to make these technical distinctions. No, it's fine. It's fine. And that, and it, no, it can't be learned. It can be become. You can become it. You can't necessarily learn. You start by. Well, okay, but I, okay, okay, fine. Me, then me, I'm going to argue with you. No, let me argue with you because this is fun. Uh, it can be learned because what happens when you make the wrong decision? And if you want to go back to Dostoevsky, look at crime and punishment. He got away with the perfect crime, but he couldn't. He couldn't abide himself. And so he learned the virtue that he failed to exhibit. Yes. Right, but he did, but uh, he, but now, but now you're exactly. I mean, I hear, I'm just making the distinction between, he, you know, he, if you'd put Dostoevsky or Raskolnikov in that case, if you put Raskolnikov in, the, in in a classroom and you just explained it all to him, it, it's not the same as him actually going out and having an experience. So Lou Mobley, for example, the man who founded the IBM Executive School, eventually fired all the Harvard professors, all the work professors. <laughs> he, had. he got rid of all the textbooks. He got rid of all tests. He got rid of everything. And, and the IBM Executive School became 12 weeks of experiential learning, simulations, sure. game, games. He invented the whole idea of, a, of taking a bunch of IBM executives, giving them $25 and dropping them off in Harlem and saying, we'll be back in three days to pick you up. Wow. Uh, you know, it, it was heavy duty 
actually experienced. He's, you know, he said he used to bring, this was back in the fifties. So he used to bring beatniks into the class, into the, into the IBM executive school. And these young beatniks would stand up in front of these older IBM executives and tell them they were fully, you know what, and they were uh, old fogies and they didn't know anything about the world. And, you know, they would just insult them in any way they could. I mean, he just did anything. I said, what were you trying to do? He said, my job was to blow their minds. Right. To get them out of the box. And get them out of the box. He said the difference between a middle manager and an executive, and an executive he said, is not a, a a straight line like going from sixth grade to seventh grade because now you, you were doing arithmetic. Now you start to do algebra, you know. It's, it's an evolutionary process. He said this was a revolutionary process. Mm. He said this was a, a, um, a transformation of consciousness. He said a revolution of consciousness. He got. I was I was trying to bring about a revolution. This is the the kind of learning, by the way. This is what the kind of le- virtue learning. The what and the learning, by the way, that Raskolnikov ends up getting in Crime and Punishment. If we're not getting too esoteric here, is an aha experience. It's a oh my now I get it. oh wow, you know. And that's not the same as being taught uh, two plus two is four. It's it's a uh, um, it's visceral. It's a, it's epiphanies. Get back to Christianity. Right. It's a it's a it's a series of epiphanies that take place because I remember when I was and it's and it's work. let's point out it's visceral. Okay, so somebody Very can visceral. teach somebody can teach you to golf, but you won't actually learn golf unless you pick up a club. And execute. And it's very difficult to execute. And so somebody could teach you virtue behavior, virtuous behavior, but you won't actually understand it until you are called upon to execute it. And and in a sense, you have to go out into the world in order to be called upon to execute it. And that's as, as parents, that's what that's what we're trying to do. So when I hire my my son to do a job for me, the reason that I'm hiring him is because I need to teach him how to behave as an employee. And that's an important lesson to learn. Do we teach that in school? No. And that's what I went further. I went further in that article that that you were quoting from where I said, listen, every job I ever took, I said, I, I didn't compartmentalize. My whole career was personal development. I said, I chose my bosses. I chose my companies. I chose my career paths precisely because what can I learn here? What can I become here? How much can I, is this going to make me into a better person? So your whole career can become your, your personal uh, development and your career uh, don't, you know, and your church and your family, all these are all just aspects of your one overarching goal. Getting back to golf, I took the golfing lessons and I had that exact experience (laughs) because what I would have. Are you any good? I I, I used to be. (laughs) Okay. uh, so I, 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 I would work and work and work. And then all of a sudden I'd have an epiphany. I said, oh, now I know what the pro was trying to tell me. Right. Right. Because you but felt it. You, you hit the, you struck the ball the right way. You moved your body the right way. By the way, let's point out that um, even the greatest golfers go to the practice range every and day. Every, so it's not way, like I they, think, they know golf and now they just do it. No, they're practicing every day. They're always working on what, what do you call it? Personal development. Exactly. And I also say to people, I say, I say to people, and this is the other thing I said, there's three aspects uh, to it. I said, um, one is having a high overarching mission that you should have in your life. I said, secondly, you need a, a formational path. What is your, what is your actual curriculum though, that you're putting yourself through on a personal basis? And then finally you need community. But the thing that I always get pondered, I said, I said, I, a matter of fact, I'm starting a new book and I, and I just hired a coach. 
I, I have always had coaches. I've always had people that would, that helped out, but most people end up trying to go out and do all this kind of stuff alone. I all, Lou Mobley was my coach. The monks have been my coach. I've always sought out people to help me on the, cause it's a very, very difficult uh, 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 thing to, to accomplish, to become a virtuous person. And then the thing, but the thing that you have the, the greatest aha experience, you know, Aristotle said, I remember reading this when I was a kid and thinking, Oh boy, uh, you know, virtue is its own reward. And I thought, boy, yeah, that sounds like my mom or something, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. The virtue is no fun, but no, if you practice at it enough and you see how it begins, you have the epiphany and you see how your life starts to work better. You see how you have better uh, uh, friends, you have, you have better people around you. You see the kind of things that come back to you a hundred times over. Um, then you begin to realize that, yes, indeed, virtue is its own reward. And the theme of my business book, Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks, is um, that the more selflessly we be, uh, the, the more successfully we forget our selfish motivations, the more successful we become. And it's in our own self-interest to forget our self-interest. And the if you really think of all the virtues, I think I can make an argument that all of the virtues are really about being selfless. Um, and all the sins are really, uh, you, you know, there might be seven deadly sins, but they're all selfishness. Um, True. And so and so we're uh, the trajectory of life, the purpose, which I wrote in my book, Brother John, the purpose of uh, uh, the, the monk, a pilgrim and the purpose of life, the one, the temple deprived. What am I constantly pounding the table? There isn't a, 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 all these different purposes of life. It's not all relative, like everybody wants to believe. No, we're all here on a trajectory to become we start out selfish. Every child starts out screaming, mine, mine, mine. <laughs> True. And we are all here to become as selfless over our lifetimes as we possibly can. In fact, one uh, of the one of the chapters in your book is the end of selfishness. Exactly. And so uh, and you what, were going to. What is uh, the ultimate? And I'll give you the ultimate form of selfishness. Uh, selflessness, you know, is is the Greek word is kenosis, and in, in the hymn of Saint Paul is uh, the famous, famous hymn of St. Paul um, is, you know, St. Paul uses kenosis when he says that, that Jesus, even though he was God, did not take on the trappings of God. He emptied himself of his divinity. Kenosis, that self-emptying, selflessness, even and humbled himself even to the point of you know, dying on a cross. Right. That's the ultimate, ultimate goal, you know, of, of, of selflessness is to be like Jesus. Right. Uh, you were going to talk a little bit about uh, what you learned from living with the monks specifically. I think. Well, the, the, we, well, the thing that I learned is is, is selflessness. That 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 you know I you, take you, us you, through you, a day. Can you take us through what what does that mean? I went to live with the monks. La 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 la. Like well, I have no idea what that means. Did you pack a bag? Okay. Did you bring a toothbrush? Like. That's about all. You, you just have to bring you bring you bring a toothbrush. Uh, first of all, they uh, I go there as a monastic guest, which means I'm a temporary part-time monk. So I get actually have a, I'm actually I actually have a habit that Brother John eventually gave me. Usually they lend it to you when you get there, but I bring mine home and bring it back with me when I come down. But um, so they assign me a room with the monks behind what's called the cloister wall. There's like a brick wall that runs in front of the church. Um, there's an entrance to the church for everybody, to, for guests and anybody else who wants to go in. But behind the wall is where the monks live. And um, 
guests, you know, you have to be a monk or a guest or monastic guest to go back there. And, then, and you and have the, to be male. And you have to be male. Okay. To be a monastic guest, to be a retreatant, you can be male or female. Um, and you can go down there and they have a beautiful, beautiful retreat center and they assign you a room there and they have, and, the, and it has its own chapel and everything. And you can participate as much as you want, go to as many different services as you want or not. They have five so services a day. They have eight services a day. Oh, okay. So, eight. So the first thing you do is get up at uh, three o'clock. So you're assigned a room. The room looks like a, a very clean, very cheap motel room. Uh, it's got a private bath. It's one room. It's got a a, be- a single bed, uh, a table and a desk, uh, a, a desk and a chair to go to the desk, a, a reading chair with a with a um a table with a, a standing lamp. A lamp, yeah. And a little curtain that goes across a little insert in the wall that is where your closet is, and that's it. That's what you've got. That's where you okay. live. Well, you don't really need much of a closet if you're wearing the robe no. all the time. No, and is and it carpeted? Yes, it's got a carpeted, oh, okay. air, and it's air conditioned and it's heated. Okay. Um, actually, there is one building that's not air conditioned, and some of the monks prefer that. You know, I don't know why it's 150 degrees down there in the summer. <laughs> um, but uh, then at three o'clock in the morning, there's a bell, a, a, a tone sounds in your room. You get up at three in the morning. You go to vigils at three twenty in the morning, and vigils all all except for mass. Um, every day, all of the services are pretty much the same. And that is that the monks line up on either side of the, they face each other across the main aisle of the church. And then they have what are called stalls. They are each, each monk is assigned a stall and they chant the Psalms. Um, they start with a hymn and a prayer and then they, they chant the Psalms back and forth to each other. So one side will take the first line and then the second will take the second line of the Psalm. And then they have a reading. Uh, from the Bible, a scriptural reading, and um, some other prayers, and that's that's a service. And um, and then they have so they have eight of these services at different times during the day. Some are longer than others. Um, one goes about the the first one that I just mentioned. Vigils goes for about forty five minutes. Um, uh, Vespers and lauds are about thirty minutes, and terse and known um, and compliment are about fifteen minutes. Wow. So um, they're uh, uh, and so, and and then as soon as the, uh, and then there's mass and you go to mass and, so, uh, and at, so for after mass at seven 30 in the morning, you go to work. So then you, uh, you work, uh, um, until noon and then you have lunch, which is your big meal of the day. And then you, uh, and they're vegetarians, by the way, they don't eat meat, a little bit of fish, but they don't eat meat. And then, um, in the afternoon, you go back to work till about four o'clock, and then the between six thirty and seven thirty, you have at five o'clock is the is supper, and it's very very light. So you just come in and you get a cheese sandwich or a peanut butter sandwich or a bowl of cereal or something like that for supper, and or salad, and and then um, between uh, six o'clock is vespers. At six thirty, uh, you're out of vespers, and from six thirty to seven thirty, it's pretty much your free time. That's when, if you want to talk to somebody, you want to meet to somebody, something like that, you do that. Uh, and then you go to uh, Compline at seven thirty, and Compline is over at about ten to eight in bed. You go to bed, you get back up at three in the morning, and do it all over again. Um, so the only Wait, difference. So you're so you are talking seven hours, basically seven hours of sleep. Yes, and you get a you get a um, siesta, a forty five minute siesta right after lunch, which I which I never took. But the uh, 
that the on Sunday you don't work, so there's no work on Sunday. So all the church services are the same, but you don't go to you don't go to work on Sundays. And so then what do you have, do? What do you do? Okay, so talk to me about work. So what uh, now? The year for years when I was going down there, the main job that they work that they had. Um, and by the way, this is, I described all most of this in my, in the book is they had eggs, they had 40,000 chickens and they raised eggs. And I used to work in the eggery. And so I had, um, uh, the round table. So after they were all cleaned and graded, uh, and put into cartons, they would spit out onto this big round table that was mo- going round and round and round. And then my job was to grab the extra large and put them into a case for extra large and grab the larges and put them in their large and put them in the smalls and the smalls. Mm. And then when I, when I got a bunch of cartons filled up on a, on a um, little cart, um, I would push it into the refrigerator and rush back and, and uh, keep, keep moving so that, it, that if you pile up too many eggs, they start going on the ground. Oh. So I worked in the, I worked in the egg business. Now they don't do the eggs anymore. They're doing mushrooms. So most of the time when what I go. kind of mushrooms? Very, I'm kidding. I, I should know. I should, yeah, they're not magic, but they are, they're, they have a couple of different kinds of very exotic mushrooms. They're making a, a, a lot of money. They get a lot of money for these mushrooms. I mean, it's an exhaustible. The restaurants and everything in the area would love these mushrooms. So that's, uh, incidentally, the cover of the book is um, basically two, two hands of somebody dressed in, I suppose, one of the monks' robes. Uh, it's, holding Father Ke- it's, Father Ke- it's actually one of the monks. Father Kevin is in that. That's, that's a picture of Father Right. Kevin. It's fab- fabulous. So holding two two different kinds of mushrooms, actually. Yeah, in his in his hands, yeah. My whole idea was I wanted to have golden eggs originally, you know, and they said, no, nah, I wouldn't do the golden eggs. But... Um, uh, so yes, so that's that's what that's what they do now. What I do most of the time when I go down there now, since they don't really need me in the in the mushroom business, they, I'm a janitor. So uh, I get the the mops and the, uh, and I clean the church and I clean the cobwebs off the roof of the church and I clean the clean the offices and sometimes I work in the kitchen. And uh, I remember one day I had a I spent an entire day I spent eight hours opening um, pistachio shells. Um, and, uh, and it was the, the big mistake I made, Sam, was that I did use my fingernails, you know, and, oh. uh, and what I didn't realize is I chewed the heck up out of my fingernails. Oh, yeah. and I realized so burn for day for a week after that. My oh, fingernails yeah. was all burned. Okay. So, but, so the reason that you went there was, um, uh, well, initially you were, you were trying to heal from an injury and one of your students, because you, you decided that mentoring young people into business was a clever thing for you to do. And so you reached no, out I to... No, first of all, I was not mentoring them in business. I was mentoring them on spirituality. But you were mentoring so, them into business. No, I, I'm I sorry. Okay, my, my mistake. You you decided to mentor young people in spirituality. Uh-huh. And then... After you were at yeah. the North Carolina State University, University of North Carolina and Duke University. What was the and speech the, that you gave? I actually gave a speech uh, in... Called Five Years with a Zen Master, which was a description was a, some of the stories about me working with this Zen teacher when I was still in co- uh, right out of college. Okay, and um, and then you had a student say to you, "I took you up on your proposition of becoming more spiritual and figuring out purpose of well, life." Right? Yeah, that was in 1988 that I gave a lecture. By 19, this was 1996. 
Um, and I, and, and, and I had all kinds of different students from, you know, it wasn't a Zen thing or anything. It was just, all, uh, and this, this guy, uh, I, and I went, what had happened is they took me skydiving and I smashed my ankle in a skydiving accident. And I woke up in the hospital and I started having horrible, horrible panic attacks. And when I finally got out of the hospital, I was overcome by depression. So it was the mother of all midlife crises. And it was a spiritual crisis because, uh, I realized I was facing my mortality. And, and rather than me being able to fall back on all these years of spiritual, what I considered spiritual work and spiritual seeking and, right. and, uh, there was nothing there. Um, you know, father Christian later called it deus absconditus when sometimes uh-huh. God, God just pulls away from yeah. you in order to show you how much you need him. Mm. And so I went into this tremendous depression and just then i get the telephone call from this guy josh telling one of my students telling me he was spending the entire summer at mepkin abbey because he had taken my advice to do something meaningful with his summer vacation rather than just drink beer and chase girls (laughs) and i i told him i said i don't remember giving that advice but his voice had changed and so i just said i gotta come i just sensed that there was something magical happening to him i'd known him for four years and uh, so I just rushed down to the monastery and I thought Brother John was the one that showed me my first work. Now, I went there first as a retreatant. Um, so I was just staying right. in the retreat, the treat houses and stuff. And um, and I was just I had a, a couple of amazing experiences happen to me the first weekend I went. Now, here you asking about experiences and some of them, you know, uh, uh, you know, Jesus said, blessed are those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. You know, you have to. You know, that's what Father Christians tells me about my incident with Brother John. He says, first thing he said to me is, you noticed, did you? So I was primed to notice things. So I was in line waiting for lunch and I was behind this 90 year old monk. It learned out later his name brought Father Brother Gregory. I became friendly with him. But and so he's like 90 years old. And he's all stooped over. and He's moving really slow. And he's bending over to get his tray for the for the lunch line, and I'm and I and I noticed in myself a little bit of impatience, you know, like come on, come on, and it's taking forever. And then all of a sudden, he comes up with his tray and he turns around with a big smile and gives it to me. Right. And I was so embarrassed and I was so ashamed, you know. I said, "This man's living the way I'm you know, I'm supposed to be living, and uh, he's uh, giving trays away." Um, even though it takes him all right, the he's effort. serving he's serving yeah. despite an infirmity he's exactly. serving others and and maybe i should be focusing on others as opposed to my own sort of impatience, impatience and yeah exactly you know and then i had another i was going to i was in the, one of the services and um there was a the read or the reading was from kings where um elijah um here's here's the earth trembling but it's not, the lord is not in the earth and in the volcano and the fire and the and the storm and he goes to the mouth of the grave and he, he hears a still small voice and god passes by um and i just came apart i started crying and crying i couldn't stop crying and and i just ran out of the church and i, I ran over to the uh, out of the monastery proper, out into the parking lot. I'm wandering around just trying to figure out what happened to me and why I'm having this reaction. And suddenly I see this other, this monk, you know, who should be at church and he's um, an older monk and he's in it and he starts coming, uh, walking with a very deliberate kind of way. And also he makes a right hand turn and comes directly towards me. And um, when he gets to me, he's got his hood up and he's staring at me, but he won't talk. And I keep saying, my name's August Turek, and I'm here on retreat. And he just finally just whirls and walks away. 
and later on, as I, I wrote about it, I said later on, I realized that um, this was, you know, I was told that this was uh, Father Benjamin and he was Alzheimer's. And this was pretty much his last un- unsupervised mm. walk. But I said, even though I knew that, I still couldn't shake the idea that he had been staring into my face, demanding me to asking me to account for my life. And I'd been unable to do so. So these this combination of these two kind of shocks, you know, uh, right. the very first time. Um, you know, and I came back the next weekend and the next weekend and the next weekend until I finally applied to become a um, monastic guest myself. And I went down on the Christmas of 96. And that's when I had the encounter on Christmas Eve with Brother John, which led to my Templeton Prize winning um, essay, Brother John, and my book, Brother John, and all my whole writing career. Um, so everything came out of, uh, you know, I talk a lot about happy accidents in my Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks book, that, that when, you're, when you do live a virtuous life, um, when you do uh, then all of a sudden things just things to happen things just, i call them happy accidents now if you're christianity we call grace you know graceful grace kinds to starts to find you mm-hmm. but i said i so i mentioned all these incredible happy accidents about how i won the templeton prize how i sold my business how i ended up becoming a, a contributor for forbes how i ended up having a columbia business school call me up and ask me to write a book and the same with my become how I became the contributor for uh, for for BBC was an accident. I said, but the happiest accident of my entire life, Sam, was breaking my ankle, falling out of that airplane and 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 breaking my ankle because that dark night of the soul, um, I ended up having a spiritual experience at the end of the two years, 1998, and I had been battling depression since I was 14 years old. Uh, and uh, and I have not had a moment's depression or anxiety in in the 22 years since. So um, everything uh, and everything came out. Of, everything has come out of that dark night and of that broken ankle, and all of that precipitated, um, you know, a, a tremendous you know, all the other great things that have happened to me. So that's the happiest accident in my life is actually smashing my ankle. That's how I found the monks. They're the ones that led me to the spiritual experience. The spiritual experience is what changed my life, which led to all the different things that has happened to me in writing and a second career and selling my business and everything. Um, so uh, it's just all these, you know, and, and the funny thing, I, remember, I mentioned this on our, I think last time on our show, on your show, I said, you know, we always think that, we, yeah, you were talking about, uh, you were urging your um, your listeners, get out there. not Don't just talk about it. Don't just give money. Don't write a check. Get out there and make yourself available to other people. And I came back and talked to you about how uh, I thought I was giving, 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 giving to these college students when all of a sudden, when I look back now, I'm the one that was the beneficiary. I'm the one that uh, got all the uh, learned about the monks and and uh, and they're the ones that told me about the Templeton contest and they're the ones that right. suggested uh, all the great things that have come back to me. You know, it's like the book of Job, right? At the end of the book of Job, what happens? Uh, God gives Job seven times back right. everything he thought he's lost because he stays faithful. Right. The name of uh, of that book is Brother John, A Monk, A Pilgrim, and the Purpose of Life. It's actually it 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 looks like it's a children's book. Um, right, it's well, full of illustrations. It's large format, hard covered. You know what I mean? As, as, absolutely. We what we did 
was I kept getting over the years after that was published as when it came out as a first as an essay that won the Templeton Prize. Then it was published in Best of Christian Writings and Best of Catholic Writings in 2005. And then it kind of fell into obscurity, of course. And then over the years, though, I'd get these emails from people saying, wow, this I, I stumbled on this and it changed my life. Or it said, um, and I finally, just a few years ago, Sam, a man showed up at my um, house and not house, house. And I'm from Pittsburgh. <laughs> and um, he told me that his uh, wife had walked out on him. He was the vice president of a uh, BBT bank. And he, his wife walked out on him and he hit the, and he was just completely blindsided and he became suicidal. And he stumbled on my essay and my essay gave him hope. And so then he went to the monastery and the monks took him in and he stayed there for, took a sabbatical from the bank and stayed there for four months. And he read my other book. And so as he was leaving, he asked Brother John if uh, my address and he came all the way up here to thank me for writing Brother John. And I said to him, I said, thank you. I'm very humbled. I said, but I also feel guilty. And he said, why? He said, um, I said, he's asked me why. And I said, because I said, I have a, ca- a candle under a bushel. You're not the first person. I said, but if I'm helping a few, I should be helping many. So as soon as he left, I have a woman, her name is Melissa. She's an angel who runs my nonprofit for me. And I called her up and I said, Melissa, we got to do what we've been thinking about doing. How do you turn a 3,500 word essay into a book? What if it was an illustrated book? Mm-hmm. And so I, the Lord sent me the, uh, a world-class artist who I've never physically met yet. His name is Glenn Harrington. He does, by the way, speaking of golf, he does all the uh, portraits for all the great art. Oh, golf, I thought golf, I recognized the name. Yeah. It's our golf hall of fame. All the, all yeah, the portraits yeah. for the golf hall of fame were done by Glenn. And so Glenn's an Irish Catholic and a, de- and a devout Christian. And he said to me, Oh my God, I'd love to do this project. He, you know, Christ- he said, anything with a uh, Christian or spiritual theme is dead in the water and art today. Everybody hates anything religious. He said, this would give me an opportunity. So then I called my nephew who worked for Scholastic in New York. And I said, I got this guy on the phone in a few hours, an hour ago. I said, he really wants to do it, but I don't know anything. And I get one bite at the apple. If I choose the right artist, the wrong artist, I said, I'm dead. So he kept calling me back two days later. He said, oh my God, Augie, Glenn, Glenn's famous. He said, all the great publishers up here use him. We pay $10,000 to get one cover from him for one of our books. Mm. So he uh, did 22 oil, original oil paintings. He went to Mepkin Abbey, took a lot of photographs. Right. He did 20, 22 original oil paintings of the monks in Mepkin Abbey to illustrate my essay. And uh, and then we published it as a as a book. And it's become very quickly become a Christmas classic because just by accident, the story takes place on Christmas Eve. Um So another. Well, happy the, I act. mean, it's absolutely beautiful and it's definitely worth Considering as a gift for somebody, um, it's just spectacular, and the story is oh, the story is great too. So I mean, obviously, uh, yeah, we can certainly recommend it. So it's called Brother John, a Monk, a Pilgrim, and the Purpose of Life. The author is August Turek, who is who we're listening to right now, just to remind the audience. Um, it's just fascinating. Uh, speaking to somebody who sees life as a series of happy accidents. Uh, you know, and, and of course, I know you don't believe in accidents, right? No, I don't believe in accidents at all. I think the la- one of the last things I said in my um, my Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks book, which, by the way, illustrates how I used all the Trappist virtues to build, to start with $2,500 and end up with a company worth $150 million. Uh, and um, 
so I, you know, I don't, I said, I said, I believe, I believe in grace. And, uh, so I don't believe that, uh, you know, that any of the, and I said at the very end, I said, you know, I, I said, uh, I talk about mission all the time. I said, I never had a plan for my life. I said, I'm a good planner, but I never had a plan. I said, but I always had a mission. And now when I look back, I see that, that my life has come off according to a plan. It was just a plan. It was not my plan. And it was a plan that was so much bigger than me. In other words, God's plan. And, um, and so I agree with that, uh, you know, completely. And so Max, I do a speech, a talk I call tuning into grace. And, uh, and you know, the, the, when you when you tune into grace, it, it's I don't want to turn. I'm not one of these prosperity consciousness Christians or something where, you know, the more you know, you say your say your prayers so you can get rich. But uh, it, it happened in my case that it did end up having some monetary rewards. But my point is, is that the more you tune into grace, the better your life will be. Right. Whether it turns out to be financially or 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 or, or not. Or in any way, a million other ways. I mean, I, I the, the the price. For example, if you ask um, me, you know, what is the most precious thing that I that I have gotten? I had nothing to do with any of the money or the business stuff that other people seem to care so much about. To me, being free of depression for 22 years, um, you know, so when I suffered from severe depression. You know, so how? So, but let's talk about that because I know that I have listeners who suffer from depression, uh, and I've and I've talked to um, homeschoolers and parents, uh, moms who say I can't homeschool my kids because I suffer from depression. Right. How did you resolve your depression? God resolved my depression. I had a spiritual experience. As a matter of fact, that's what I'm going to be writing my next book is going so, to be about. So that's you just credit that you say. I had a spiritual experience that showed me what? God. I mean, uh, the you know, the truth. Um, it's it's something you know. Whether Did it take away fear, it took away all fear, all anxiety, all um, uh, um, depression. Do you think and that the depression it, was associated with fear? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I mean, the, 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 there's a wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, it's called The Denial of Death. And at heart, I believe that all uh, that, you know, and he it makes the point. He said, there's only really one fear. If you trace any fear, for example, let's, let's say you're, you're afraid of, it's this fear of death. If you're afraid, afraid of rejection, for example, well, what's going to happen? If you're rejected, that means the village throws you out of the village. What happens to you if the village throws you out of the village? You die of starvation. Right. <laughs> it means that, right. Everything so, boils all, down to death. And, all, and in fact, all, if when, when you're betrayed, that's a small death because exactly. the, the experience that you had is no longer available and to it, you because it's dead, right? Exactly. And, and more than that, because it's really tying in to a primordial when you were betrayed primordially you drove you, you uh, somebody told you there was a water hole 50 miles uh, east of here and you got to when you got 50 miles east of there you were out of water and found out there's no water hole uh, yeah you were, you were betrayed yeah and get and guess what you died of thirst and you died yeah so you really literally died so all of these metaphorical uh deaths are linked to real deaths so uh, all of all of these uh, these things that we that we have uh, fear of, 
And um, and I and, and fundamentally, I wrote I write a story about. Um, first of all, all of the spiritual experiences by their very nature, I can't describe it. You know, I, you know, I can. I ha- I'm going to be writing a whole book, and I'll end up trying to put put some words to it. But um, but in my in my book, the Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks, I talk about Brother William and what, uh, and I had this wonderful relationship with him, but I didn't really know anything about him. Uh, we just loved each other. And um, one day I was cutting grass and he comes out and um, and he brings me some water and we sit down on a park bench and he starts telling me that he had uh, back in the 1960s, because he'd been a monk forever, he had decided to become a hermit and he had moved out into the woods in Mepkin Abbey and lived for three or four years in a little shack. And you can still go out in the woods, by the way, and see these shacks that these monks have built. And he lived in this shack uh, for three or four years. And so I was fascinated. So I started asking him all these questions about um, what it was like living in his shack, you know, and how did he go to church and how did he get the communion and things like that. And uh, and eventually I you know I didn't want to probe too personally, but I couldn't help it. I got overpowered by my curiosity. I said, mm-hmm. brother, brother William, I said, did you get anything out of it? And he had his elbows on his knees and he was looking down between his legs at the ground when I asked him the question. And I don't know what I was expecting. The, the Virgin Mary visited me one night or I, I saw a vision of Jesus or, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, I started levitating or, or something, <laughs> you know. And, and he didn't say anything for a moment. I thought, oh, I've gone too far. And all of a sudden, he looked over at me, and very quietly, he said, I had to face myself. And then his head went back to where it was. And to me, that was one of the most profound moments of my life, because he trusted me with that information. He didn't elaborate. He didn't elucidate. He didn't explain more about what he meant by facing himself. He knew that I knew that how incredible accomplishment that is to face to just face yourself and what i ended up doing it took me two years of this horrible dark night of the soul and just being i had to finally face myself you know i finally had to um you know the thing is what the the thing that we are so terrified of is is the last line of to get to the point where you're at the last line of the book of job and for your readers, you know, what is the last line of the book of Job? It is, he says, I have heard you with my ears. He's talking to God. I had heard you with my ears, but now that I have seen you with my eyes, I know that I am dust. And coming to the utter, utter realization that you are dust is not an easy thing to do. Um, to that self emptying to completely, completely give up all of your, your, um, your ego and all of the, your, your, the, the things you want to think about yourself. And, uh, well, that's a struggle not, for today, right? Exactly. But once you made that, once you're willing to finally to, to surrender, right. you know, I say all the time to people, I said, you know, I said, you know, everybody glibly talks about surrender. Oh, last Thursday I surrendered. No, no. I said, you can no more consciously surrender than you can kill yourself by holding your breath. Right. I mean, you surrender is not something we do. It's something that happens to us. You know, and it happens to us when we are when we when we when we really get to a point where we have to turn to God and say, I'll accept God on your terms. Right. And, and one not- way one way to approach that, because we're running out of time, one way to approach that 
is to involve yourself in service to others. Because Absolutely. if you can escape yourself for a little bit and turn outward and serve others, then the inward focus is um, is blurred enough for you to start to realize just how insignificant you are and how to lose lose the rest of that ego. Absolutely. If I could leave, We've, you know, you're uh, quickly. You got ten seconds. Uh, well, I was just—I was going to say that my last, my greatest accomplishment in my life happened a few years ago when I was going to the gym, and a man, an older man, was handing out towels, and they never hand out towels there. I've never seen him before. I never see him since. Yeah, five seconds. He handed, he handed me a towel, wouldn't give it up, and he said, "If you could be anywhere, doing anything, where would you be right now?" And I said, "I'd be doing this right now." And that's my greatest accomplishment. That's fantastic, August Jurek. So great to speak with you. You should make so it into a movie. <laughs> this is the and Sam Sorbo way, Show. So, st- so thank you so much for listening on Mojo50.com. And go have a great rest of your day. You can unlock more cash than you realize from your home's equity with a cash-out refinance today. In the last year, average home values have gone up nearly 20%. And with Rocket Mortgage, you could unlock thousands in less than three weeks. But you've got to act right now before rates go up. So when you're looking to unlock the cash in your home, Rocket can. Call 8338-ROCKET today or go to rocketmortgage.com to get started. Rocket. Rates current as a 12-12-21. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender license in all 50 states and MLS consumeraccess.org. Number 3030. Call 800-490-1233 for disclosures and cost information.